Hello, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers Festival. I hope you enjoy this conversation from our podcast series. Welcome, welcome everyone to the annual Penn Lecture here at the Sydney Writers Festival. And we're honoured today to have Maureen Faruqi, the Green Senator for New South Wales, who's got a lot to say today about freedom of speech and her experiences of racism in the Australian Parliament. My name's Claudia Taranto, and I'm a member of the Penn Sydney Management Committee. And I'd like to, first of all, acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we're meeting on today, the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and remind us all that this land was never ceded. I'm just going to say a little bit about Penn before we hear from Maureen. Penn Sydney is one of 150 Penn centres around the world. Uh, there's one in Melbourne and there's also one in Perth here in Australia. And we work to protect free speech and the rights of writers, writers who are at risk of being persecuted and imprisoned for their work. China, Myanmar, Turkey, Uganda, Mexico, Cuba, and so many other places around the world. In fact, there are more than a thousand writers on the list that Penn publishes every couple of years, writers who are imprisoned for their work. And one of our traditions at our events is to have an empty chair to represent an imprisoned writer. Here's our empty chair today. And the empty chair today is for Australian Julian Assange. Because yesterday, oh, Because yesterday, the UK Home Secretary gained the right to sign the extradition order for Julian Assange. That's right, his, um, all of his legal options have now been uh, exhausted and it could happen any day now. Uh, he'll be sent off to the United States to stand trial where he's facing up to 175 years in, in prison. And you'll be pleased to know that Penn centres around the world have been active for Julian Assange. I've seen some terrific photos of um, Slovenian journalists standing outside the UK consulate, holding up placards, and um, Penn centres around the world are writing letters about it. Maureen Faruqi is a Green Senator for New South Wales, but she's not up for re-election this Saturday, which is probably why she has the time to be here with us. She's a civil and environmental engineer, she immigrated to Australia from Pakistan in 1992. She did a doctorate at the Uni of New South Wales and then worked in local government and as an academic. And when she joined the New South Wales Parliament in 2013, she was the first Muslim woman to sit in an Australian Parliament. Then she was elected to the Federal Senate in 2018 and she broke another glass ceiling. She was the first Muslim senator. She's been a passionate advocate against racism and misogyny. And her talk today is titled Freedom of Speech, From Whom? Please welcome Maureen Faruqi. Thank you so much, Claudia, for that kind introduction and thanks everyone. Good afternoon and hello. I will start by acknowledging the sovereign owners of the land that we are gathered on, the Gadigal, and pay my respects to elders past and present. This is, always was, and always will be Aboriginal land. I'd also like to acknowledge that there can be no social 
or environmental justice without racial justice. And there can be no racial justice without First Nations justice. So as we strive for justice and equity, First Nations people and their voices must be front and center of the struggle. And justice must come on their terms, not ours. Thank you so much for having me here today. It's fantastic to be back speaking at the Sydney Writers' Festival, and it is truly such an honor to deliver this lecture in partnership with Penn International. As we gather here and discuss these ideas, reflect, debate, and listen to one another, it should never be far from our minds that even such basic rights as what we're doing today cannot be taken for granted. It is in recognition of the struggle and plight of people whose rights have been limited, infringed, and in many ways, there are cases where people have been penalized for speaking out that we come together this afternoon. We resolve and make a commitment to each other to do more, whatever we can, to ensure that freedom of expression is upheld, that marginalized voices are heard, and that stories that were not supposed to see the light of day or deemed important enough to be told are told. In my ramblings this afternoon on freedom of speech, I hope to explore who gets heard and who doesn't, who is given a voice and who is silenced, what are the consequences of that, and what needs to change. Some of what I will talk about today is also reflected in depth in my book, Too Migrant, Too Muslim, Too Loud. There is somewhat of an irony, I must admit, in me delivering this lecture today. I am an Australian senator. As one of 76 senators and one of 227 politicians democratically elected to represent our community in the federal parliament, on paper, I have one of the biggest platforms and potentially loudest voices of anyone in this country. Federal parliamentarians, because of our position, are listened to. You can't escape hearing from at least a few of us if you tune into your news at any given day. Sometimes, and I can think of more than a few of my colleagues, when I say this to you, you might want to escape it. But in our democracy, as a matter of course, MPs generally do get heard. And herein lies the nuance. And one of the many contradictions that I would like to tease out this afternoon, drawing on my own personal experiences, as well as the reflections of others that I respect and care about. Formal positions rarely reflect in any simple or logical way, the power that someone yields or the voice that someone has in any system. It is much more complex than that. Old, heaving structures of race, of class, of gender, and of social standing shape the power and influence that a person wields in our society, regardless of what their title might be, or the positional role that they occupy.
In my case, and in the case of people like me, let's put it bluntly, as a settler colonial country founded on the dispossession and genocide of First Nations people and the enforcement of racist legislation such as the white Australia policy for much of the last century, Australia is set up as a place where it's extremely difficult to get heard, to get taken seriously, and to change society if you don't have white European roots. The first indigenous woman elected to federal parliament, Nova Peres, and the first Muslim senator, that's me, were only elected to parliament in the second half of the 21st century. Just consider that for a moment. Indigenous people have been here for thousands upon thousands of years. And Muslims also came here a few hundred years ago. Nova Peres left parliament after just one term. Years later, she revealed the extent of racism she was subjected to and that had played a big part in her decision not to return to parliament for a second term, even though she would have been in a winnable seat. She said, if you are an Aboriginal person and you challenge the status quo, you are going to be attacked. Her story is quite similar to other women of color politicians in Western countries, including the four progressive Democratic Party Congress women of color in the US, often known as the Squad, who are targets of hate, abuse, and mockery continuously. I do see a lot of my own experiences in the attacks on these women and the silencing effect that it has. I spoke about this in my first speech to the Senate, where I said, the reality is that my presence in the Senate is an affront to some. They are offended that people of color and Muslims have the audacity to not only exist, but to open our mouths and join the public debate. Some politicians call us cockroaches. Some say we are a disease against which Australia needs vaccination. Some, if they had their way, would ban us from making Australia our home. So it is with great pride that I stand here before you, unapologetically. Thank you. Unapologetically, a brown, Muslim, migrant, feminist woman, and a green senator. I say unapologetically because if there is one thing with, that people with stories like mine are asked to do constantly, it is to apologize for our presence because we are not quiet enough, not respectful enough, not thankful enough, not Australian enough. Our country cannot be the place most of us want it to be while the threat of abuse continues to discourage people from participating in public life and in politics. While we may see some more diverse faces on our television or read their words in our newspapers or witness them speak from more important positions of power in our society, 
the system is still very much stacked against us. The most generous assessment I can offer is that while some progress has been made, we do still have a very long way to go. Just have a look at the institution that I sit within, the federal parliament. Out of the 227 current members, only a handful of us are people of color or First Nations people. This is all while people of color, that is Australians of non-European ethnic background, constitute about one quarter of the Australian population. We have an incredibly diverse society that has grown in size and diversity since the abolition of the white Australia policy in the 1970s. But here's the thing. Proportionally, if Australians of color had our representative share of seats in parliament, that one quarter would translate to federal parliamentary representation of more than 50 MPs of color, 50 MPs. That group of 50 MPs is almost an unthinkable notion from where I sit, especially when you picture in your mind the current cohort of Australian political class, and in particular, who makes up the front bench in the incumbent government. Let's be clear, I am proud to be part of a party where our federal party room is 60% women and half of them are black and brown women. But this representation is in no way reflected throughout the rest of the parliament. And if you put it simply, the Australia I see inside my current workplace is so radically different to the Australia that I live in, the streets and suburbs that I walk every day. Much has been said over the past 12 months or so, very fairly and very honestly, about Parliament as an institutionally sexist place. I would add that it is an institutionally racist place as well. An under-acknowledged part of the Kate Jenkins Review of Commonwealth Parliamentary Workplaces, which was released last year, considered the experiences of Parliament for people of color. The report shares some extremely telling insights into our experiences, which really haven't made it into the light of day or have been talked about much at all. And I'd just like to read out a few short excerpts to illustrate it. Participants shared that identifying in this way or as otherwise different from the norm in these workplaces is inherently unsafe. These participants identified a need to increase diversity to neutralize the impact of this and reduce the potential of people of color to be targets. Another participant from a parliamentary department reflected on a clear indication given to me by my colleagues, peers, and managers that I don't belong here and that this isn't a physically or psychologically safe space for me, being a young woman of color. A member of participants, a number of participants told the commission that even raising issues of racism or the intersectionality of racism and sexism within my workplace kind of initiates a very aggressive response. Participants reflected that this contributed to their sense of lack of psychological safety and unwillingness to report misconduct, given the risk of further ostracism. 
And this is pretty much like I feel every single day in that place. And all of this is to say that Parliament is not a safe place for people of colour. A small number of us may be part of the institution, but because of our tiny representation and the toxic culture of the place, it is not welcoming as an environment. And the impacts are significant. There is layer upon layer of power, privilege, and hierarchy above us to push through just to raise our heads above the parapet. And then we have to muster up courage to actually speak up. And then we, when we do speak up, we are told either explicitly or implicitly to shut up and to be grateful that we have made it to where we are. The eye rolls, the finger wagging, the ridicule that happens every time you talk about racism is enough to make me police my own behavior to not be too loud and just to be grateful. The reactions we face when expressing our freedom of speech gatekeep what we can and can't say. And I have to say, this situation was something of a shock to me when I was first elected as a state MP in New South Wales Parliament in 2013. And it only got worse when I got to the Senate some three and a half years ago. I did not expect this of Australia. You see, growing up in Pakistan, a place which was once colonized by the British, the narrative that had filtered down to me was that of a wealthy Western country being a place where everyone was treated with the same dignity and respect. Since migrating to Australia in 1992, I quickly realized the fallacy of my assumptions as I learned more about the treatment of First Nations people, the violence of dispossession and colonization, which is still rooted in law, in societal attitudes and institutional systems, resulting in death and discrimination of First Nations people. These same structures have led to Islamophobia, bigotry, and the rise of the far right in this country. Arriving in parliament and thrown into the public eye made clear to me in no uncertain terms that Australia has deep, unresolved, and systemic problems of race and racism. As I touched on earlier, one of racism's impacts is to silence its targets. And I think it's a pretty deliberate strategy to make us feel so small and think we have nothing of value to contribute. And when that person does speak up to make sure that what they are saying is ignored, ridiculed, or attacked. Even our responses to racism are policed. To even talk about racism lands you a full-page attack piece in the Daily Telegraph. And I do go into much more detail about this in my memoir and manifesto, but I do want to illustrate just a few examples of what this looks like to me in my workplace. My colleagues get my name wrong all the time. In a public Senate hearing, I had to patiently correct then-Senator Ian MacDonald several times, he kept pronouncing it incorrectly anyway. 
Even worse was the time, the MP Craig Kelly. Yes, absolutely. During a community meeting in Parliament, Mist pronounced my name and then told a room full of people who looked exactly like me, who were from the subcontinent, this is what he said to them, we should have simple names. I can't tell you how much I am looking forward to seeing Mr. Kelly voted out this Saturday. <laughs> but I wish that that was as bad as it gets. In the New South Wales Parliament, one day when I was speaking about the government's irrational exuberance in expanding coal mining, one MP commented that I should cook with cow dung, as millions of families do in the subcontinent. Another accused me of using terrorist sorts of tactics when I was raising a procedural point. More recently, while speaking in the Senate on the Christchurch mosque shootings, a subject of immense personal significance and seriousness to my community, one Liberal MP repeatedly screamed over me that the terrorist was a socialist. Put to one side that this completely dismisses the final report of the New Zealand Royal Commission, which found that extreme right-wing Islamophobic ideology motivated the terrorist. It was really extraordinary to have a fellow senator shouting these mistruths and what you can really say verbal abuse at the only Muslim representative in the Senate at a time when I was mourning the massacre of 51 innocent Muslims by an Australian man. It is galling that MPs feel so comfortable in the chambers of parliament to fling racism and abuse across the aisle, safe in the knowledge that most of the time, Hansard doesn't record their interjections. Of course, when speech is held to account, it's usually to silence those who try to hold racism accountable. This type of situation typifies the different rules built into our society, which allow free speech for some, but not for others. Recently, I had to formally withdraw a comment I had made in the Senate chamber describing a fellow senator's conduct as racist. But that same senator had been given free reign in a Senate committee hearing to question Chinese Australians loyalty to this country on the basis of their cultural background. Only one of us faced consequences for what we had said. Racism is rarely punished, but those who call out racism, we cop it frequently. We are the ones gaslighted. We are the ones accused of causing division, told to quiet down when we talk about racism, as if racism is not the problem, but we who are calling it out are. Perhaps one of the most revealing and alarming aspects of debates about freedom of speech in Australia is that they tend to be dominated by those who already have an enormous platform and enormous privilege by virtue of who they are. In other words, those who are the fastest to jump up 
to jump up and down about their freedom of speech being infringed are often those who have the least to worry about. And it is their free speech concerns that are prioritized as well. It remains a point of national shame, in my view, that perhaps the longest and most arduous political debate about free speech over the last decade has involved conservative white male politicians trying to water down the section of the Racial Discrimination Act, which makes it unlawful to offend, insult, humiliate, or intimidate someone on the basis of their race. For years, we had seemingly endless discussions about Section 18C, its operation, its application to particular News Corp columnists, its utility in the supposed non-racist society. Unfortunately, it was all for naught, as the campaigns failed on two separate occasions under two prime ministers. But it did reveal a certain cultural anxiety amongst the privileged that their views are perhaps no longer palatable or acceptable in a diverse communities as they once might have been. Or at least, if they express an offensive view, someone might actually do or say something to call them out on it. And it was very instructive that the parliamentary inquiry set up to consider Section 18C was called the Freedom of Speech in Australia Inquiry, as if no other free speech issue held a candle to the right to be a bigot, as it was put by the then Attorney General. Meanwhile, public servants have been sacked for anonymous tweets, over-the-top defamation laws continue to protect the powerful from fair criticism, and whistleblowers are refused protection for the supposed crime of exposing misconduct in our institutions. In Australia, it seems the right to express racism is far more important than anything else. Defending hate speech in the name of free speech has resulted in a corrosive, abusive culture, especially online hate speech. Hate speech isn't a theoretical discussion about free speech for me and so many others. Hate does have real-world consequences for people, for their safety, for their mental health, and that of their families. And while there are many political and cultural reasons for the excruciating debate about racial hate speech, one thing is quite clear. The overwhelming whiteness of our political class has had inevitable consequences for what issues take up political space and what issues facing communities of color are dismissed or even quashed. While the debate over Section 18C has died down over the last few years, we have seen a renewed and related emerging debate in the form of cultural anxiety about so-called cancel culture. This is the new right-wing bogeyman for a supposed intolerance for ideological and political differences that is held by the progressive left. This intolerance, it is argued, is punishing good people who may have said or done something that they now regret, or simply hold a different view and have been unfairly targeted 
and stigmatized because of it. I'm going to be pretty upfront about my view on this. I think it's a load of crap. The only cancel culture in our society is one which targets the already marginalized. It's one that forced a young Muslim woman to flee the country and move overseas after posting a seven-word tweet about Anzac Day, for instance. The right's confected outrage over cancellation is little more than an attempt to retain some sort of power over the terms of debate when minorities and their allies muster up the courage to speak up and try to inject their own voices into the political conversation, often simply defending their own right to exist. To illustrate this, let's examine perhaps the most prominent recent issue, a case study of a person whose supporters have tried to play the cancel culture card during this election campaign. Warringah Liberal candidate Catherine Deves was always going to be a controversial selection. She was an open anti-trans activist. Her advocacy was known, and her abhorrent views on trans people had already been expressed in the public domain when the Liberals pre-selected her for a winnable seat that they had held until 2019, uh, a former prime minister's seat, I might add. The community backlash was predictable, but it was also, in my view, entirely justified. Transgender people are some of the most marginalized in our country. Young transgender people face enormous stigmatization and are at much higher risk of serious mental health concerns, self-harm, and suicide than their peers. Just in the last few days, trans people have been more public and vocal about their right to exist. Organizations and governments have shifted incrementally over some years, it must be said, to accommodate and acknowledge the fact that gender diversity is part and parcel of the human condition. Sports codes have drawn up guidelines. The medical profession has dedicated resources to trans health. Schools are working out how to accommodate trans students these are all positive, good moves. Within this shift, of course, there will be different views about how best to support trans people and what that means for cisgendered people as well. But Deves' comments expressed about trans people as a campaigner against trans inclusion are completely abhorrent and bigoted. When predictably asked about this on the campaign trail, Prime Minister Scott Morrison did not condemn Deves. On the contrary, he said, what I won't allow is for those who are seeking to cancel Catherine simply because she has a different view to them on the issue of women and girls in sport. He said, I'm, going to allow, I'm not going to allow her to be silenced. I'm not going to allow her to be pushed aside as the pylon comes in to try and silence her. For him, there was not a thought for those who have been hurt by hearing what the government's preferred member of parliament for Warringah had to say about them and their community. It was about, at a fundamental level, her right to be a bigot. And putting aside what the prime minister's personal response was, 
for all the talk of cancellation, what has actually happened to Catherine Deves? She remains the liberal candidate for Warringah. She is out campaigning and is on the ballot paper on Saturday. She was granted a sympathetic front page interview with the Sydney Morning Herald just last week. Regardless of what happens on election day, she will be fine. Cancel culture, as the right characterize it, is a fiction. Supporters of equality and for the rights of the marginalized spoke up, as they are entitled to do. They held Deves accountable. She was rightly called out for her bigoted comments. The prime minister, I think, responded shamefully, as he often does. And the world moved on, because the Catherine Deves and the Scott Morrisons of the world, white, well-off, well-connected, hold the institutional power. They are not the ones whose freedom of speech we should be worried about, particularly when they have expressed such vile, hateful views. So confected conservative outrage on the right about cancel culture serves to distract us from the real free speech violations impacting writers and communicators in perilous circumstances, both in Australia and across the world. Many of you would be quite familiar with the story of Behrouz Bachani. Behrouz is a writer and journalist who fled Iran in 2013 following military raids on the office of the magazine that he co-founded after a long period of being watched by the Iranian government. Some of his colleagues were arrested and imprisoned, and he ended up fleeing the country. Behrouz was intercepted on his boat journey to Australia and taken to Christmas Island initially, and then to Manus. He was incarcerated by Australia in PNG for seven long years and wrote about his experiences and the unspeakable horrors of it laboriously on a mobile phone. The Saturday paper aptly described this as Buchani has defied and defeated the best efforts of Australian governments to deny asylum seekers a face and a voice. So we can't think that freedom of speech for writers is somewhere out there in those global south countries. It's impacting us right here in our own backyard. The recent violent killings of, killing of Al Jazeera journalist Shirin Abu Akleh by Israeli armed forces is a horrific loss and a stark reminder of the silencing of those who speak for justice for Palestine. It has been reported that dozens of Palestinian journalists have been killed since the year 2000 and many others injured and targeted. In the United States, there is an ongoing culture war about so-called critical race theory in schools, which Pauline Hansen's One Nation and members of the right wing of the Liberal Party have tried to import to Australia during debates about a national school curriculum. In the US, hyping up parental fears about what is being discussed in classrooms has led to literal book bannings and extreme curtailments on what teachers can and can't say in schools about issues such as race and sexuality. Lists of banned books disproportionately include those written by authors of color. We know that the functionality and legitimacy of a democracy 
is dependent on the freedom of press and the freedom for all writers to express their views, critique government policy, and report honestly on what is happening in the world. But so many examples tell us how far away we are from this reality. Even in places that consider themselves beacons of democracies and free speech. It's pretty obvious that freedom of speech is very conditional on who you are and what you say. So where do we go from here? In a country where the right to be a bigot can be more important than the right to live free of racism, transphobia, and discrimination, what can we do to make sure voices can hold hate to account and that they are not silenced? What can we actually do to ensure justice? And I'll give you just some of my ideas. I think we must strive for diverse representation at all levels in our society, from parliament down. There is power in numbers, and the stronger representation of diverse experiences and worldviews will play a role in shielding all of us from the worst forms of racism and bigotry. It will protect our right to be heard, not silenced, and it will help us call out the hate speech that is flung our way without being accused of playing the race card all the time. Political parties, too, have a significant role to play in all of this. This work is everyone's responsibility, and every political party must do better. Secondly, we must be clear about who is responsible for promoting the voices of the powerful and vilifying the rest of us who dare to call them out. Media like News Corp has been the flag bearer of dog whistling as well as flagrant racism. And we must act with our feet. I've said from day one of my federal parliamentary career that I will never participate in an interview on Sky News Australia. I've never pitched. I've never pitched a story and I've never rejected, and I have always rejected or ignored every single request from them. And that's because, in my view, Sky is an anti-democratic organization with a malicious agenda. And that aside from being responsible for, for a long, and it's a very long list, of awful racist incidents, has as its principal political objective the normalization and validation of far-right ideas. It sees our evolving multicultural democracy as a threat to the white patriarchal order that has run this country more or less since colonization. Viewers, advertisers, and guests who are concerned about democracy, truly concerned about democracy, human rights, and discrimination should walk away from such media. Thirdly, we must actively support the excellent work of writers, groups, and publications that are promoting diverse voices and ensuring we are part of the conversation. Groups like Sweatshop in Western Sydney, the advocacy group Media Diversity Australia, 
and even sections of some mainstream media organizations that are investing in diverse writers and giving voice to their stories and perspectives. They should be applauded, and they should be financially supported. And that means more than a pat on the head. It means proper platforms and being taken seriously, especially when our views might challenge the orthodoxy of the white status quo. In my life, I've always tried to speak truth to power and to speak honestly about my own experiences. All of us should be free to do this if we wish. But I do know that along with many others, I'm often ignored. And I know that there are forces at work that are aimed at stifling me. Those of us who care about freedom of expression and living in a democratic society need to seriously invest time and effort to ensure the marginalized in our community do have a voice, do get a voice, and the right to free speech isn't misconstrued and weaponized by the powerful as their right alone to hang on to their cultural and political power. This is a big task, but it is a critical one. I'd like to finish by reading out one of my favorite verses in Urdu from a poem by Pakistani writer Faz Ahmed Faz, who was imprisoned for four years in Pakistan. He was a member of the Communist Party and wrote on the plight of workers and on human rights abuses across the world, from apartheid in South Africa to human rights violations in Palestine. This is in Urdu, but I will give you a bit of translation later on. Bol ke lab azad hain tere. Bol zuban ab tak teri hai. Tera sutwa jism hai tera. Bol ke jaan ab tak teri hai. And the essence of this verse is that we all have a duty to speak up, to resist, and to speak the truth, no matter what our circumstances. Being a senator, being your senator, is an immense privilege. And it does give me an even greater privilege of having a platform, despite the many limitations because of who I am. And I intend to use this platform to speak out, to be as loud as I can against injustice, and to amplify voices that seek justice, whoever they are and wherever they are. Thank you so much for coming to hear me today. <laughs> And happy voting on Saturday if you already haven't voted. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Maureen. We've got time for a few questions. If, if anyone has a question for Maureen, please just come to the microphone there. Um, <laughs> do you want to do, you want to do oh. literal translation? I'm um, sure I can try. So it says, speak up because 
your lips are free. Speak up because your tongue is your own. Speak up because your body is your own. And speak up because your life is your own. But much more beautiful in Urdu. <laughs> and I actually, I actually got a tattoo a few years ago. This is Bol in Urdu, and it's a reminder for me to always speak up and speak out. <laughs> I'm a pen member. I just wondered, um, I'm working on the Benelong election and probably 70 to 80% of the women uh, walk past when I say I'm handing out a how to vote for the only woman. Uh, when I say she's Tibetan, I often get, she's not Australian, even though she's been here 12 years. It's not really a question, but if you'd like to comment, yeah, feel free. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a very good question. I've been here 30 years now, more than I lived in Pakistan. I still get told that. Why are you even in parliament? You're not even Australian. Um, and that's what I'm talking about. You know, the structures and systems of our country are the ones that need to be changed. Because, you know, racism is not just about what individuals experience. It is actually, which is, of course, hurtful and damaging and, um, you know, psychologically but it is about how that affects us as a whole society as well. And that is exactly what happens. I, I love door knocking. Um, I actually love this idea and I do it all the time of, you know, it's, I feel it's such a privilege to open up someone's front gate, knock on their door and have a conversation with them. Um, and I've heard quite a few times someone who opens up the door and tells me to go away uh, because like, why are you even involved in our politics? You know, you're not from here. Um, I think it'll take the whole, all of us to get things changed, uh, but I do believe that, you know, reflecting our communities in parliaments would be a massive jump to how we can change the structural racism that exists. So thank you for handing out for that candidate. Um, hopefully more of us and more political parties realizing that people like us are not around to be quoted as voting blocks to be stood beside at our cultural and religious festivals and taken photographs of, which are then put on social media, um, but that we are part and parcel um, of this country and we want the issues that affect us to be addressed. Um, and, you know, and, and we want to participate in politics as well, so don't put us on a ticket in unwinnable seats. Don't parachute white candidates in most diverse multicultural uh, electorates in, in the country. You know. Um, so, and, and as voters, we all have the power to give a very strong message to political parties that are doing that at this election. Uh, hi. <clears throat> hi. Without going into all the sort of constitutional legal details of it, I would argue that Australians have nothing like a right of free speech. Mm. Do you plan to do anything to give us a constitutional enforceable right of free speech? Um, you are absolutely right um, that there is a problem in, in Australia. I mean, in the US, there is a Bill of Rights. Um, so we, uh, the Greens have been campaigning for years for something like that to be instituted in Australia, and we will keep campaigning on that. Because I think that would be a fundamental change to how, um, you know, even like racism and bigotry, all of that is viewed 
um, and dealt with in Australia. So absolutely, we will definitely keep campaigning for that. Any more questions? Thank you very much for your uh, talk. It's most illuminating. I wonder what um, should be restrictions should be imposed upon the tech giants in relation to their supposed freedom of speech, where we get a lot of hate speech, and how do we control that? Yeah, that's a million dollar, a billion dollar question, or perhaps even a trillion dollar question. Um, it is, you know, a lot of the hate speech goes on on social media, and they basically profit from that hate. Uh, when I did my first speech in the Senate, um, I got a lot of love from the community, which I'm very grateful for, but I got like unbelievable amounts of hate across social media. And I think it was a year or two years on that The Guardian did an investigation on what had happened. And what had happened was that far-right groups had actually orchestrated this mass attack on me um, and, um, you know, two um, politicians uh, in, um, in the U.S. I think it was Rashida Taleb and can't remember, another Muslim woman. And it was basically an orchestrated Islamophobic attack. Uh, and while Facebook took down some of those pages, some of them still exist. So it is a big problem and they make money from it. And I think no one has been able, they, I mean, of course we should, we should make social media much more accountable for what happens on their pages. It is a bit of a complex story there um, and that needs to happen, but I think it's also about people in society who feel that they can spout this hatred. And part of that picture is because many politicians here and in other countries have actually given them, um, I guess, the, the freedom to do that because that's what they do. You know, in, in our politicians not, don't just dog whistle on asylum seekers and migrants and um, people of color and black people. They actually spout hatred as well uh, in many platforms. So I think there has to be a cultural shift as well as reigning in um, social media, media giants. There has to be a huge cultural shift. Hi. Um, I came here today because I was sick of the two old white men trying to um, vie for our votes to be prime minister, and I desperately needed some wisdom from brown aunties, so thank you. Um, yeah, so like just picking up on your point about um, needing a cultural shift, I think the thing that I struggle with most is when I talk to your average white man about the intersection of um, misogyny and racism, um, and these are like men who consider themselves progressive. They vote for the Greens, they um, consider them, themselves feminist, but it's like there's a lack of empathy mm. to our everyday experiences. And talking to them about like just, you know, little things that you can do to make our lives better is incredibly difficult because the response I get is like, oh, why should I make all that effort? I vote mm. for the Greens once every three years, mm. Um, mm. which is heartbreaking. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so mm. yeah, how, how do we, and, and kind of like pushing back against that is incredibly hard. It comes at a big personal cost. Yeah. Um, yeah, so like how do we affect that cultural mm. change so that mm. like everyone can mm. help us mm. out? 
I love the title of um, Brown Auntie. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and that is a really good point that you've raised, that it is often left up to us to do that labor of pushing back against racism. And um, I, I feel, yes, this is my role to do that, but it'd be good to have more allies as well um, to make our load lighter. So one of the things that um, you know, I have proposed for this election, it's a big platform that my team and I have prepared as to how to make Australia um, an anti-racist country. Um, and there are a number of prongs to that particular platform, but one of the things that I have undertaken as well and all my colleagues and our teams in the, Fed, the Greens uh, teams in the federal parliament have done is anti-racism training, uh, which is kind of the first point of call where actually white people are made to realize the privilege that they have. Um, maybe even challenge white fragility. That's what it did for a lot of people who, who did that training. Um, and, you know, and think about how that translates into the institutions, in laws. I mean, we know, you know, Aboriginal um, people have a much shorter lifespan uh, in terms of health, that their treatment in the health system is quite different, in the prison system is quite different. That's institutional racism. So what, what I want to do is to mandate anti-racism training for all federal politicians and for all federal departments and their staff. And you know, that's maybe, because they can't walk in our shoes, right? We have our life's experiences, but you don't, you, you, that's not the only way to get empathy. You can actually imagine yourself in our shoes. Um, and that's what that's about. But of course, we want laws against, you know, criminalizing hate speech. Uh, you know, a big part, like I said earlier, for having more uh, people who represent our ethnic diversity in parliaments, you know, we get rid of Section 44, for instance. You know, that's a, a big barrier, apart from others, like political barriers as well. Um, so th there are many things that we can do. Um, I mean, it's, it's hard, some, and I know exactly what you mean, to talk to individual people and try and push back. And but we've got to do it. Often I say it in our communities as well. I know this is tiring work, but my experience has been that no one's going to roll out a red carpet for us and say, okay, come on, you know, here is a position as a CEO of this organization. You know, we have to roll up our sleeves um, and do the work. And, you know, for our white allies, and there are many, um, you know, you, there are a few things you can do. You can talk about this with other people who are your peers. Sometimes it's easier for people to listen to someone who looks like them, for instance. You know, you can give up a bit of your privilege, step back, step aside, and give us the platform in places as well. So just a few things to think about. But I do think that, you know, we also need an anti-racism national strategy to be rolled out. Um, you know, we, um, there, ha there have been, I think it's been five or six years now, where there has been zero funding, or maybe even more than that, for a strategy which used to exist, but it has never been, like, it hasn't been implemented because there's been no funding. Um, so, you know, it, like I said, this is not a thing one, uh, one person can do or one place might change and do things. It is something that has to be talked about in parliaments, in, in sporting clubs, in, you know, in, at dinner parties. Um, it has to be a thing that is front and center of our mind. And maybe if, one more thing that I could add is that, you, you know, if we, until 
we have truth, treaty, and a voice, which is at the core of what kind of society we are at the moment in terms of um, racism and discrimination. I think it's very hard for us to move forward in any of this. We have time for one more question. Thank you, Senator. Um, coming here, I was reflecting on your talk last year with your son, um, which was entertaining, um, and on the precipice of the publication of your book. I'm just wondering if you could reflect on the past year of having a book out and the very many Australians you've probably met on that journey. And if you were to come again next year, what might the year ahead look like and do you feel hopeful for Australia? Sorry, I didn't get the last bit. Do you feel hopeful for the year ahead for Australia? Oh, do I feel hopeful? Um, listen, I cling on to hope very tightly. I wouldn't be here standing in front of you or in Parliament if I, I didn't think that there was always hope. Um, but to have hope, you've got to play your part in it. Um, and to, you know, and, and to, I guess, have a vision for a positive future. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I am with the political party that I am, because we've never been shy of, you know, kind of sowing the seed of, you know, an idea, which at, is a bold, might be a contested idea at that time. But, you know, and then, you know, debating it and talking to people about it, having conversations about it until it becomes a reality. I am very proud of, you know, uh, my team, um, where we have at this election, you know, put out the ideas of everyone should have a roof over their head, that we need to build one million homes in Australia, make sure that we have strong rights for renters where they can have long-term leases, um, you know, for instance, or um, end um, no grounds evictions, because that is a huge crisis facing our country. We are not shy of putting out there that if we want to address seriously address climate change, that we have to end coal and gas. We've got to wean ourselves off it and move to 100% renewable energy. We're not shy of putting forward the idea that you know, education should be truly free, that no student should come out with tens of thousands of dollars of debt which holds them back when the cost of living is so high. Um, so yes, I am very hopeful, I'm, I am. Fingers crossed, very hopeful for what happens on Saturday as well. And why I'm hopeful is because every day I have this opportunity to speak to so many people on the ground, um, you know, on the streets, in rallies, you know, and bus stops, you know, whether rain, hail or shine. People are out there. People are out there really trying to convince others that we need to be better and what it takes for us to be better. And they do it for no reason at all but only because it's the right thing to do. How can that not give you hope? Um, so yes, absolutely. Hopefully I can come back here next year and the world would have changed. <laughs> Thank you very much, Senator Faruqi. And just before you leave, I'd like to encourage you to take a pen magazine. We put out a fantastic magazine twice a year full of articles about uh, writing and free speech and in there, you can also, there's information about how to sign up to become a member of PEN uh, to support writers who are at risk. And follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter as well. But thank you very much, Senator. Thank Rick. you, Claudia. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.